it is so fun to actually have people in the room. Uh, I, I'm, uh, today we're, we're kind of, uh, we're testing out some of our new live stream equipment and, uh, and, and testing out some new toys that we've got here at the church. Uh, and we've got some of our leaders in the room, we've got our tech team in the room, we've got a band in the room, we've got our greeting team in the room, we've got some of our board in the room, and it's so, so exciting to actually be able to see you. Even though I can't see any of your faces, because they're all covered in masks, I'm assuming everyone is smiling uh, and excited and happy, and uh, I'm thrilled to be preaching. This is the longest of my adult life that I've not preached in front of a live audience. Like, this is the longest, like, portion of time. Uh, so today's either going to be terrible or it's going to be really good. I don't know which. Uh, you guys can tell me at the end. But I'm just thankful that I have one person in the room besides Tyler who sometimes mocks me from behind the camera and tries to make me laugh. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to have everybody here. And uh, for everybody that's watching at home in your watch parties or in groups, we really do want to encourage you to continue with the watch parties, uh, continue to gather with your family, with people in your homes and worship together uh, as we kind of begin this kind of regathering phase of the church. And, and I'm really excited about that kind of regathering phase. Uh, we're going to start a new series today, and, and I was thinking about this this week. I love a really good fictional book. Like, I, I love the Bible. Like, I love theology. I know I, I'm a pastor, and I'm supposed to read those things. But I also love just a really good story. Anybody with me? Like, just a story that you can get lost in, a story that you can find yourself in, a story that has characters that you relate to and connect to. I love a good book. And I, I, one of the things I love when, it, historical fiction is my favorite. Anybody with me? Uh, I like history, and so I like the history, but I like it also to have a little more, I like somebody to like make history a little more exciting for me, right? I don't want to just read somebody's biography. I want to read it with a bunch of fake stuff in there too, so I can distinguish what's real and what's fake. And I, I love historical fiction. Historical fiction is really fun. And I love a story that has multiple characters that uh, are, are in multiple places. So like, for example, there's, there's a character that starts here, and there's a character that starts here, there's a character that starts here, there's a character that starts here, and, and, and maybe each chapter is about a different character. You know the kind of fiction I'm talking about, where each chapter is a different person's story, and then at the very end of the book, all of these characters converge. Like, they have all of these stories that cross over one another and bounce around one another, but at the end of the story, you see that all of the smaller stories you've been hearing actually converge into a larger story that has meaning. I love that idea. I love the idea, and I think it's brilliant. I think it's hard to write that way, so I love the creativity around it. I, I love when you see, like, this character interacts with this character, but you're not sure where this character's going, and, and then there's this one character line over here, and you're not even sure what that character's doing, and then there's the main character who you're kind of tracking with and following, and it isn't until the end of the book where you begin to see that all of the smaller stories that you've been reading about converge to, to have larger meaning and to tell a larger story. That's what we're going to be talking about over the next seven weeks. We're going to spend the next seven weeks talking about the smaller stories that we find ourselves in and the larger story of God. 
We're going to talk about how when we talk about we, when we talk about us, when we talk about the church, when we talk about who we are and who we're becoming and who we're called to be and what's the purpose of the church and what's the identity of the church and what's the activity of the church and who are we and what are we supposed to be doing, when we look at all of those things, what we need to realize is there is a beauty of these moments that inside the church there are all of us living our distinct smaller lives. We're all living our character development plot. We're all going about our day and our week and sometimes our lives converge and sometimes they don't. But our smaller stories, our smaller individual stories actually come together to tell a larger story. That is the beauty of the church. The beauty of the church is that inside of all the smaller stories that we live is the larger story of God that has been going on from generation to generation to generation to generation. It's not a story that started with us. It's not a story that started with my grandpa. It's not a story that started in America. It's a story that started long ago and has been been being told over and over again. And we get to be a part, a small little part of the story of God. And there is such beauty in that. And so as we talk about this, I want us to understand that it's only by understanding the larger story that we've been invited to that we can understand the smaller stories that we're living. It's only by understanding the context of who we're called to be as a community and as a people that we can understand who we're being called to as individuals. And so we're going to spend the next few weeks in Ephesians, just walking through the definition of who is the church, what is the church, what's the, what are we supposed to do, why do we exist, who are we, all of these things. And this is birthed out of an interesting season for us, right? We're, we're doing this, see, this, this series for a reason, because as, as COVID has come, uh, in, in, in about, about four months ago, we went from this place of meeting and gathering every week, where the church was thriving, the church was doing amazing. If you would have told me, how is Grace Marietta doing at that time, I would have said, we're doing amazing. Like, we're growing, more people are coming every week, there's more salvations, more people are coming to know Jesus, there's this amazing worship culture that's developing, there's this great leadership pipeline of leaders that are serving, and, and, and we're developing habits of serving the community and caring for people, our staff is growing, I would have said, we're doing amazing, better than we've ever done before. And then COVID hit. And over the last four months, if you were to ask me how Grace Marietta is doing today, I would say, I think we're good. Are you with me? I, I think we're doing good. Uh, I don't know. Uh, George Barna just did a, 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 a bit of research on the church, and he said, uh, right now, 33% of church attendees have stopped attending church completely since the church has gone online. Uh, and I keep hearing the phrase over and over again from people, why is the church closed? When are we going to reopen? And I keep telling everybody, the church has never been closed. We have never stopped preaching the word of Jesus. We've never stopped serving our community. We've never stopped caring for our neighbors. We've never stopped encouraging one another. We've never stopped discipleship. We've never stopped worship. We've never stopped praying. All of the activities that the church has been called to do have been moved to a different venue, but none of them have ever been closed. And so when we talk about what the church is doing, we're using the word regathering and not reopening because the church has never been closed. We are regathering. But, but, an, but an interesting dynamic has happened for many in the church. When the church didn't gather on Sunday, we didn't know who we are anymore. 
When we lost one component of who the church is, it was as if we lost all of the components of who the church is. It was as if we forgot who we are and who we're supposed to be because we couldn't gather on Sunday. Now let me say this, I love gathering on Sundays. I've been excited about this day for like three weeks now. I've been ready to have people in the room. There was something awesome when we started singing that first song together, that we were in the room together. There was something beautiful that happened when Kayla and Meredith prayed. We were praying together in the room. Uh, Earlier this week, our leadership team gathered outside at the pavilion, and we prayed together, and there was something special. Something special happens when we're together. We were meant to be together. But when we are not together, it does not mean that the church stops functioning. It does not mean that the church has lost anything in all of these things. And and so the question we're asking is, is is when the church isn't gathering, who are we? Uh, The Bible actually uses a different word to describe the church. If you look up church in the dictionary, which I did this week, uh, it, it talks about a building. Every time you look at it, so in, according to Webster, and I don't know who the other people are that make up words, but whoever those people are, they all say that the church is a building that we go to to worship. Uh, but, but the reality is, Scripture defines church in a completely different way. The word that the Bible uses to describe the church is the word ecclesia. Everybody say that with me in the room. Ecclesia. If you're at home, awkwardly say that to the other people in your house. Uh, ecclesia is the word. Uh, ecclesia. And the Greek word for ecclesia, what it means is the called out ones or the chosen ones. We are the chosen ones of God. We are the called ones of God. And, and which leads us to the question, who are we called by and what are we called to? If we are the called out ones, if we are the chosen ones, we are chosen for a purpose, right? We understand that the people of God are chosen for the purposes of God, that we're called out to do good works, which the Father prepared for us in advance. We recognize these things, but we have to understand that when we are chosen, we are chosen for a purpose. Uh, when I was in elementary school, I was terrible at soccer. I'm still terrible at soccer to this day. I, I'm good at most sports. Soccer, I cannot do. My feet do not, they, they don't work the way that they're supposed to. Uh, I, I don't, hand-eye coordination, I've got feet-eye coordination, I don't have. I don't know if it's that I'm tall. Like, I think a lot of tall people are bad at soccer. Am I right in saying that? Or maybe that's just an excuse that I use. Can, I, can somebody affirm that? Yeah. It's, uh, well, I could have been a goalie. I, like, tall, the tall people are always the goalies, right? You don't see, like, a six-foot, well, I guess you do occasionally. But anyway, I, I'm terrible at soccer. I'm the guy that goes on a missions trip and plays with the kids on a missions trip, and they mock me the whole time. Um, so when I was in elementary school, what we would do at recess is we would play whatever sport was in season during recess, right? So if it was football season, we would play football at recess. If it was basketball season, we would play basketball. I felt really good about those times. I did really well. If it was baseball season, we would play kickball or baseball or something like that. And, and we would play. And when it was soccer season, we would play soccer. And, and I was always picked first in the other games. And in the soccer game, I was always at the bottom of the people picked. I would just stand there and wait to be chosen. You remember that feeling in elementary school? Just standing there and waiting to be chosen. It's like a, a, a junior high boy at a junior high dance just standing there. Um, the, the, I think a junior high dance is, is the most awkward environment that we can come up with in our world, right? It, it's, it's this beautiful social experiment of 
how weird are these boys now and are they ever going to grow up? Right? It's just this moment of just standing there waiting to be chosen. I can remember in elementary school standing there waiting to be chosen because I wanted to play soccer and I would never get chosen. And there was one day, so what would happen was the, the, the kids that were good at the sports, and I, I, I did this with basketball, would pick all the other kids that were good at the sport to be on their team so they would just demolish everybody else. I don't know how that works in elementary school. It's not fair at all. But in elementary school, it's like the strongest survive, right? It's survival of the fittest. And, and so that's how it works. And so in soccer, all the best kids at soccer would be on a team, and then I would be on the team with all the terrible kids. And I remember there was one day I was playing. I was not chosen on the good team. I was, I was playing on the terrible team. And there was one day where I got lucky. Right? I got lucky, and for some reason, I was a little faster than some of the other kids. And I, was a, I was fairly athletic. I just couldn't kick the ball. So normally I just missed it when I tried to kick it. But this day, there was, there was a miraculous, it was Holy Spirit power. I don't know what it was. But there was a day where, where I scored three goals at recess. The, and, and, and my team ended up losing at the very end, four to three. But I scored all three of my team's goals. And from that moment on, I was always the worst player on the better team instead of the terrible player on the bad team. So I got moved. I got chosen from one team to another. I got, and, and what happened was I, I moved from the losing team to the winning team over and over and over again. We all know that feeling of being chosen. Or that feeling of wanting to be chosen. Or that feeling of want to be included. Uh, as we look at Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, it says this. It said, blessed be the God of our Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He chose us so that we would be holy and and blameless before him. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He has chosen his church. He has picked out, he has handpicked the smaller stories and the larger stories that he wants us to live in. And this is really theologically thick, and I'm not going to get into the chosenness or the predestination of all of these things, because there's way too much for us to cover, and it would be a rabbit trail that would take us into all kinds of crazy places. But today, I want to focus on this phrase. We, as the church, are called out of something but we're also called into something. We are chosen out of this world, but we are chosen into Christ's world. We are chosen into a holy and a blameless life. Let's go back to the, to the story of Abraham, right? Let's go back to the beginning of this idea of chosenness. God chose Abram. He chose him and said, out of you, Abram, I'm going to allow you to live your smaller story, but I'm going to invite you into a larger story. Abram was living a really good life. He was really wealthy. He owned lots of land. He owned lots of cattle, which is a good thing back then. Right? He, had, he, he, he was doing fine in his life, and God met him, and he called him out of this just small story that he'd been living in into a larger story that he'd invite him, in, him into. And what God does is he makes him a, a promise. He says, I'm going to make you a father. Now, there's a smaller story, and there's a larger story of that fatherhood, right? The, the smaller story is you're going to have a son, which he thought was impossible at that time. His wife, Sarah, and him were not able to have children. It had become a burden for them. And he says, listen, part of your smaller story, I'm going to give you this promise. I'm going to give you a child. I'm going to give you a son. But then as a larger story, he said, look at the heavens. 
Look at the stars in the sky. That will be your descendants. I'm going to make you not just the father of a son that's going to come. I'm going to make you the father of a nation. I'm going to invite you to have a leadership role in the larger story that I'm inviting you into. And so there's this smaller story that's playing out in Abram's life, but there's also a larger story that he's being invited into. He's, He's being called to the father of many nations. Genesis chapter 12 says this. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, right? There's a leaving. He's called away from something as he's called to something. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I'm going to call you out of something because I'm calling you into something, right? I'm inviting you to step away from where you are now because I'm inviting you into something bigger. And and, and it says, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What we see is how Abram's smaller story actually plays out in the larger story. I will make you so that, do you see that in there? I will make you a great nation. I will will bless you. I will curse those who curse you. I will call you. I will do all of these things so that you will carry the promise. So that you will be the father of many nations. So that you will be the picture of what a relationship with me looks like. So that you will be an example for the rest of the world and for the rest of the earth. So that you will be the first of all the chosen ones. And God is clearly rooting Abram's smaller story into Abraham's larger story. He's called to something, but he's also called away from something. God has always called his church away from the world. He's always called his church to be what we call an alternative community, a community that lives in a different way than the world around them. And so we're called to something. We're called to worship. We're called to gather together. We're called to pray. We're called to discipleship. We're called to serve. We're called to bless. But we're also called away from living the same way that the world is called to live. Abram's invitation from God is I'm inviting you to live as if you trust that I'm in charge of your life. I'm inviting you to live as if you believe that I'm faithful. I'm inviting you to live, not comparing what everybody else in the world is doing, but I'm inviting you to live as if you trust me. I'm inviting you into this new space, into this alternative community where a holy people can show what a holy life looks like, where a group of people can embody what living for a faithful God looks like, where we can walk together. And Abraham is chosen so that others might know him. Deuteronomy 14.2 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all of the people who are on the face of the earth. I love 1 Peter 2.9, if we want a New Testament version of this. It says, but you are a chosen race. Isn't that an interesting word there, race? Race is hardly ever mentioned in the Bible, but it is right there. And you know what it's referring to? It's not referring to ethnicity. It's not referring to the color of skin. It's referring to the church. You are a chosen race race. This is your people. This is your tribe. This is the people that you belong to. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out into the darkness and into his marvelous light. So the church in Ephesus that that, that Paul's writing this letter to is, is a church that has decided it has to look different from the world. 
right? There's this understanding that there are smaller stories that exist, there's a larger story that exists. There's an understanding that we are called to something, but we're also called away from something. And the challenges in Ephesus were huge for the church. If you read through the book of Ephesians, you will see that Ephesus is a, a really powerful city. There is a lot of money and resources coming through the city of Ephesus, and they're being asked to model a different way. Paul gets really specific with some of the problems. He talks about gossip. Gossip is a major problem in the church in Ephesus, people talking about one another. That always happens when large groups of people get together. He talks about idleness and laziness, right? I'm guessing in Ephesus, there's like a small amount of people who do a whole large amount of the work and other people who just kind of sit around. Uh, he talks about sexual immorality. There's a very sexually free culture in Ephesus, and he talks about the dangers of sexual immorality. He, he, he talks about um, false teaching. He spends a whole lot of his time on false teaching. And what's happening in Ephesus is there is a God in Ephesus, and, and there is, there's actually a giant statue in the middle of Ephesus to the god Artemis. Artemis is a female god who is the god of fertility. Uh, Artemis brings huge amounts of wealth and resources to Ephesus at this time. And so the culture there in Ephesus understands that people travel from far away to come to this, this monument for Artemis, this place where they can worship this god of fertility, this female god, and they bring money and, and they lay it at the feet of this god. And so Artemis is considered to be powerful, protective of her people, protective of her, of her temple. Um, and so there was a huge high interest rate for all of the people in the community to live there because of the worship of this god. And they were very protective of the goddess Artemis because they believed that the goddess Artemis was the one who gave them their success. The, the god Artemis is the one who gave them wealth, who gave them all the things that they had. So Paul is writing to this church that's saying, I'm calling you in to being the church, but I'm also calling you out of a culture that practices sexual immorality. I'm calling you out of a culture that practices idleness. I'm calling you out of a culture of gossip that practice speaking against one another. And I'm calling you to understand true teaching versus false teaching. And so there's very specific instructions all throughout the book of Ephesians around those topics because he's calling them to be a distinct people. And so what we need to understand in America is that we are the same. We are being called out of things of our culture so that we can be called in to be the church. Believe it or not, there are things in our culture that impact us in the same way that the worship of Artemis did in the Ephesians culture. And we have to be aware of those things. We have to understand those things. So for the next seven weeks, we're going to talk about what the church is called into. It's really good news and it's beautiful and it's fun. But I'd like to spend the rest of the message today talking about what we're called out of in America. And I think it's a timely message for where we are today. What are the, uh, I was thinking this week, what are the three sins of the American church? Um, let's start with this one. Let's start with individualism. Uh, individualism is the love of self more than others. It's this idea that we believe it. If we're talking about smaller stories and larger stories, we worship the smaller stories. Right? We're all about our smaller stories. We want to care about the smaller stories more than anything else. I was reading an article this week about soldiers returning home from the battlefield. 
And it said this, it said, soldiers have a, such a difficult time reacclimating to society and to culture. And one of the reasons why is this, they have been bound together with such a commitment and such a strong belief in one another that at any moment they would sacrifice their lives to one another for that purpose. And they participated in a shared mission together, believing that what they did together mattered more than what they were doing alone. And so when they reacclimate back into society, they have a hard time finding a place where people are actually sacrificing for one another. They have a hard time finding a place where the mission is actually worth dying for, where the mission is actually significant. And they have a hard time finding a purpose that matters as much as the purpose they found in the military. Our society is constructed as if I is the center of everything. If I work hard enough, if I get ahead, if I get the right job, if I can gather just enough wealth to take care of my children, if I can, whatever the I after that is, then everything will be okay. But biblical wisdom has a different starting point than I. It starts with we. It always starts with we. It's always about the collective. It's always about the common good. It's about we do things not for the sake of my wants, my desires, and my freedom. We do things for the sake of the common good. We do things for the sake of others. We lay down our lives for our friends. We give up our wants for others. We die to ourselves. We become living sacrifices who lay our lives on the altar and say, whatever you want with me, with my life, I'm surrendering it. I'm surrendering my smaller story for the larger story. I'm surrendering my desires and my wants for the larger community. I'm surrendering my me for the we. The inspiring stories of the Old Testament are always framed around liberation, leading people to a covenantal community, justice, truth, uh, the fulcrum of God's justice always falls on the side of shaping the shared life of his people for the good of who? The outsider, the neighbor, the friend. The Bible is always teaching us to lay down our me for the we, John Veneer, who although there's been troubling reports about his personal life recently, said this. He said, there must be more people who can say me for the community than who say the community for me in the church or the church will never be transformed in America. Individualism damages that. And in a world that is all about me, the question that the church needs to ask in this day is how do we live for we? How do we live in a different way? If the first sin of the American church is individualism, the second is consumerism. Consumerism is love of possessions more than generosity. It's loving what I have more than, more than loving what I can give. We, we live in a world where if we're unhappy, what do we do? We buy something that makes us happy. Has anybody been feeling this in COVID? Right? Has anybody been feeling the Amazon shopping kind of urge come up in you occasionally? Like, you know what? I'm not having a good day, so I'm going to go and I'm going to buy something today. And there will be a beautiful package that shows up on my porch. Anybody get like a, like a really positive experience when there's a package at the door? Anybody? Is that just me? Like my, my dogs lose their mind anytime anybody comes to the door. It's why I hate them. Right? They will they'll completely just, they're really bad. Uh, but, but every time I hear that, I recognize there's probably a package on the porch now. 
and I get a little adrenaline rush of, ooh, what's in there? And it's never anything exciting for us. I don't know why I get excited about it. Like, the most exciting thing I ever receive is a book, right? But it's, it's just, but, but I get excited that something's coming. We believe that if we don't have it, we can buy it, and it will make us happy, that we can consume it. And we treat, we treat the church in the same way. It's not about the we of where we're going as a community. It's not about the we of how we reach the people outside of the walls of the church. It's about me and how I get my needs met and how I get my needs fulfilled and how I take care of me and my family. And so the discussion around the church has turned into all kinds of crazy things. You can give Google ratings for churches now. We actually have ratings. There's multiple areas where we have ratings. Like you can give us five stars or one star. And, and, uh, and I was looking at him before this message because I was laughing at how many different places people give Grace Marietta like ratings. And it's funny because some of the people who give us bad ratings, I'm like, oh, I know who that is, right? They gave us bad ratings when they talked to me too, right? I, like I, I, I know how that works. Um, and you can rate churches. When we, when we change churches, what do we call it? We're church what? Shopping. We're church shopping. We actually use the word shopping in relationship to church. We're shopping for a new church. If, if, we, if, if the church isn't meeting our needs, what do we say? I'm not being fed. You need to feed me. It's this me. Consumerism is this me that always needs to have more. It always needs to have more so that the me can be happy. Uh, all of these are consumer issues. Uh, Sky Jathani says this, he said, when we approach Christianity as consumers, rather than seeing it, our faith, as a comprehensive way of life or an interpretive set of beliefs and values, Christianity becomes just one more brand we consume. Along with Gap, Apple, and Starbucks, we begin to express our identity by what church we go to. And the demolition of Jesus Christ from Lord to label means to live as a Christian no longer carries an expectation of obedience and good works, but rather the perpetual consumption of Christian merchandise and experience. Ouch. That's a painful quote, isn't it? When we move religion to a label, when we turn the church into something that we consume, we have completely missed the point of the fact that we live into a larger story. And we're living faithfully in our smaller stories, just proclaiming that we want more and more and more and more. So in a world that cares only about consuming, how do we live generously? Uh, the third sin, and this is the hardest one to talk about in America, is nationalism. It's the love of country more than God. It, it, every time I talk about nationalism in the church, somebody gets angry with me. Every time I talk about this sin, somebody becomes frustrated with me because there is nothing we love more in America than America. Right? There is nothing that we love more than our ideologies and, and, and our beliefs about who we are and who our nation is. But the church throughout history has always been co-opted by the government. Like, study, study the history of the early English kings and their relationship with the church. The kings were always recruiting the church to do their bidding so that they could do the governing that they wanted to govern. And the exact same thing is still happening in our country today. Our government tries to recruit the church on one side or the other. In our country, we have two sides. We have Democrats and we have Republicans. And we try and recruit our people to one side or the other so that they can do the will of governing. 
And the church gets co-opted in the middle of this for power, for personal gain, for things that we don't even believe are true. Scripture gets co-opted and used in ways that we could never imagine. For those of you who've been reading the book The Color of Compromise with us, you will see how terribly Scripture has been used to do terrible things because it was co-opted by people in power. And over and over again, what we see is this idea that America cannot be critiqued. Like we, we're, in America, we're really good at a lot of things. We're good at making stuff. We're good at building stuff. No one would ever say, as Americans, we're really good at repenting. We've never repented for our history of slavery. We've never repented for the history of what we did to indigenous people who lived in our country before we arrived. We've never even repented for dropping an atomic bomb on a city. We don't teach those things in our history classes. My kids don't learn about those things in their schools because we don't have the ability to critique. Everything has to be good. We want to make America what? Really good. If it's not really good, it's going to be great, right? We've got to be on the front, and we've got to always be the good guys. We've got to always be the right people. Uh, In a recent survey by LifeWay Research, 53% of pastors said their congregation is more in love with their country than God. 53%. Want to feel worse about that? 55% said that the people in their pews care more about their political parties and their news stations than they do the Bible. The leading source of information for a follower of Jesus has no longer become the Bible. It has become Fox News or CNN. And I don't care which of those news channels belongs to you. I personally hate them both. I don't care which of those belongs to you. This is our source of truth. The spirit of the living God is our source of truth. I I was talking to somebody recently, and I I was sharing with them... um, Passages that came straight from Scripture. I actually opened my Bible and read verses to them. This is a person who has followed Jesus for years, who is a faithful follower of Christ. I read Scriptures out of the Bible to them, and you know what he said to me? He said, that's fake news. I said, that's the Word of God. And he said, you must have some liberal version of the Bible. The Bible does not fit into our conservative and liberal constructs. They did not exist when this book was written. This precedes political parties. This precedes America. This precedes Democrats and Republicans. This precedes Fox News and CNN. This is the truth that we root ourselves in. It's the word of God and the spirit of God that's living in us over and over and over again. And so Christian nationalism seeks to merge Christian and American identities together. It distorts both the Christian faith and American democracy, and it co-ops what we believe about the Word of God into a way that people can get their thing passed through the government. And in a world that worships politics and news channels and political parties, the question for us is, how do we live differently? How do we live differently? How do we live in a set-apart world? How do we recognize that we are called away from individualism, consumerism, and nationalism? Those three sins should not live here. But the sad thing is that they do. They've infected all of us. It's a part of all of our thinking. It's a part of all of our mindset. It's so embedded into our identities of who we are that we can't escape it. 1 Peter 5, 8 says this. It says, be watchful. It says, be vigilant. 
Be sober-minded is what one of the versions says, knowing that the days are evil and that the devil is waiting to devour us. There is false teaching. There is false truth. There is false beliefs. There is false identities that are waiting to devour us if we are not careful. One of the, one of the topics, one of the, one of the ways that people describe pastors is shepherds. I, I actually really like that. I, I don't know what shepherds really do. I've, I've never shepherded anything other than the church. So I've never actually been with sheep. Uh, I'm not really an outdoors person. There was a rattlesnake in my backyard uh, the other day. It rattled at me for real. I was walking in my backyard, a rattlesnake, I just ran away. I didn't even know what to do. I asked other people on Facebook what to do about that, and no one gave me helpful things. I had about 90 people tell me to move, and someone told me to blow up my whole backyard. Uh, but but, but, but I don't, I, I'm not great with animals. I don't know how to farm. I don't know how to care for sheep. But I love this metaphor because what a shepherd does is a shepherd protects. A shepherd protects. A shepherd lovingly cares for each and every sheep. A shepherd always invites them back into the fold. The shepherd goes and pursues the one instead of the 99. The shepherd is the one who will fight off the wolves if the wolves come to attack. And I believe right now we're standing on the precipice of a time in our culture where the wolves of culture are coming and they are devouring the church. And I want to invite us to a different way. I want to lovingly say to our church that all three of these sins have dictated the behavior of many of us over the past four months. Pastor, I'm mad because we have to wear masks, and I want to wear masks. Pastor, I'm upset because we're not gathering, and I want to gather. Pastor, I'm frustrated, and I'm going somewhere else because we're talking about something that I don't want to talk about. Pastor, I'm frustrated that we're not talking about this and we need to talk more about this. Pastor, I'm frustrated because we need to support a political party. Pastor, I'm upset because we're supporting a political party. <laughs> right? all, all of these things we keep hearing over and over and over again, individualism, consumerism, and nationalism, and I want to call the church to be called out of that nonsense. I want to call us to be informed by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. I want to call us to live a distinct and a separate life than the world around us. I want to call us to say, I want to be a people who my smaller story merges with the 350 people at Grace Marietta and we tell a larger story. Because what we can do together is so much greater than what I can do by myself. Who we become in the future at Grace Marietta is going to be so greater than any legacy I could leave on my own. When we build this church, we're building this church for the next generation. We're building this church not for five years from now, not for 10 years from now. I'm building this church for 50 years from now. I'm building this church for my grandkids. I'm building this church for my great-grandkids. And I want it to be built on principles of the Word of God and the presence of God and the Spirit of God and not be co-opted by any power of this earth. And so I want to invite you to ask the Lord to search your heart. Because as I was preaching this sermon, I was convicted of all kinds of ways I fall to those three sins myself. I was convicted of all kinds of ways I live into individualism where I believe my purpose and my goals are more important than everybody else's. Consumerism where I feel like everything has to be catered for my needs and my desires and my wants. And nationalism where I allow the political climate of our country to impact my demeanor, my posture, my speech. I just get irritated these days so quickly. 
We've lost the ability to even talk to one another about these things. And I want to invite us to a different way. And so over the past four months, we've been giving you just questions to reflect on. Whether you're at home or whether you're in the room right now, I want to give us just some questions to reflect on as we wrap up the service. And Emily's going to come and is going to lead us in worship as we wrap up. And, and, and for those of you in the room who have communion, we've been given your communion stuff. As you came in, you can take communion during the song that Emily's going to sing. But I want us to reflect on these questions. Where have I been living in a me mindset and not a we mindset in regards to the church? Where does my mindset need to change where I move from living my smaller story to living into the larger story? The second is, which of the three sins of the American church is the biggest temptation for me? Individualism, consumerism, or nationalism? Which one of those am I most tempted to, 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 to fail in? And then the last question, which is my favorite, is what is one way this week I can be the church? What's one way this week I can be the church? Um, and here's what I want to invite us to. Over the next seven weeks, I want to invite us to be the church. I want to invite us every single week to think about how can I become the church today? How can I serve the church today? How can I bless? How can I um, give generously? How can I care for those around me? And, and then the simple question of how can I receive that from others? Because the beautiful thing about the church, guys, is that we don't just give, we get. That actually when we lay down ourselves, we actually get something so much greater than we could ever imagine. And because of Grace Marietta, listen, because of Grace Marietta, I am rooted in relationships. Because of Grace Marietta, when COVID hit, I was not alone. I had lots of friends that I could call. I had people praying for me. I had people from the church who were bringing us meals and just saying, we love you and we care for you and we know this season's hard. Because of this church, I have a family that I belong to. I had people that I could call and say, I'm not having a good week this week. I called Douglas a few weeks ago and just said, I'm not at my best this week. I need, you to, I need your help. Like I, I am not doing well right now. I need you. And I have people that come beside me and lift me up. We get to be a part of the larger story of God. And not only do we get each other, but we get him. The greatest gift that any of us could ever receive, we get the spirit of the living God that lives in us, empowers us, that shapes our minds and shapes our hearts and, and, and helps us navigate how we get through this season. And so let's start thinking about how do we become the church Let's start giving generously of ourselves. Let's start living in a completely chosen and called out way from the rest of the world. And let's pray that God anoints every step of it. So I don't know, guys. I don't know when we gather back together again, when COVID's all over. I don't know if we've lost 33% of our people. I don't know who's going to be here. I don't really know where we stand. But I know what the invitation is. And the invitation is for us to keep pressing on. The invitation is for us to keep pressing into relationship with the Father and with one another. The invitation is abide in me. The invitation is rest in me. The invitation is come all who are weary and I will give you rest. And the invitation of Grace Marietta is we want to do it together. So Heavenly Father, I preach too long because I'm excited because there's people in the room. But I pray that through this series you would begin to reveal yourself to us. That through this series, you would begin to reveal who you're calling us to and what you're calling us out of. That you would give us vision 
for who we are as a people. We just went through a series in Jeremiah where we talked about our personal vision. I pray now you would give us a corporate vision of who we can be together. And I pray that you would anoint us with your strength. I pray that you would breathe the power of your Holy Spirit over this church. I pray that as we gather, there would be more anointing, there would be more strength, there would be more power, more joy of being together, more worship, more desire for prayer, more desire for holiness, more desire for you, Father. And I pray that all of the obstacles that stand in front of us would be moved away by your son, Jesus. We thank you, Lord. In your name we pray, amen.